Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory heroes, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, where two longtime gal pals drink a bottle of wine while talking about women from history you've probably never heard of. And this month, celebrate women of pride. Happy Pride Month, y'all. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us. So, um... Also, thank you uh, for forgiving us for not covering uh, LGBTQ plus women last week. Like I said, time means nothing. But thankfully, there are five Mondays in June, so we get still we'll four still weeks of pride. So, thank you so much for joining us. So, uh, we actually did this last year. So, the rest of the month of June, we are going to be covering women from the LGBTQ plus community. If you're a longtime listener, you know this is not the only time of year we cover them, but nice we feel special that, highlight. you know what, we're going to celebrate them. We're going to like wave the rainbow flag. We're going to get into it, throw some glitter, smash some windows. A little bit of everything. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, so Kelly... How are you doing this week? I feel um, like we never like talk to each other on the podcast. No. <laughs> we, we talk. We get all of it before the podcast. We do. Podcast. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like a weird week. I didn't get a lot done. And it was it was very much a week where I just felt like disconnected from everything. And yeah, time was absolutely meaningless. I can imagine because you're on furlough thanks to COVID-19, everyone's favorite coronavirus. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, hopefully by the end of the month, I'll be back at work, but I nice. don't know how that's looking. Fingers crossed. Right. How about you? How was your week? Uh, This week has been like some weird highs and lows. So actually, when I was driving over here, I was like, oh, shit, I need to think of what I'm thankful for. Uh, and I could all I, I couldn't think of anything like super big. It was just a lot of little moments. And I was like, you know what? That's what it's all about. But then I also remembered that I've been averaging at 40 unread emails all week. Like I keep answering them and the number never goes down. And I was like, yeah, that sucked too. But I got on, I went on some walks and Charlie got compliments when I took him on walks. Aww. And I uh, was able to walk down to uh, my favorite coffee shop the last couple days for lunch. I got a smoothie yesterday and a Korean vegan bugoli bowl today. I've heard, so I've heard those are good. Yeah. Oh my God. So like... The, the coffee shop is all vegan. Mm-hmm. Everything's vegan. And I I eat meat. I'm not vegetarian. I'm not vegan. And like, it doesn't really matter to me. Right. But uh, their stuff's real good. It's so good. I was scared to eat it because I, you, you know how you are with like certain vegetables where it's like, oh, God, what if I don't like it? You know, it's just it, it, it's just like outside of your comfort zone. Now that's like all I want to eat. And I love well, they, it. They get their stuff. I'm going to I'm I'm Googling something quick. Because there's, they get their stuff from like a very aptly named store in the Twin Cities. Oh yeah, it's the Her- Herbivorous Butcher. That's yeah, and they that's they, right. they sell plant based proteins. And I'm like, I love that that's their name. And but this coffee shop um gets all their meat based products or non meat based products meat from this butcher quote unquote that's awesome they also have like a bunch of vegan pastries that they get from a, a vegan baker up in the city oh, really? yeah and they sell their coffee and their cold brew and like i'm just i'm loving it and so it's just like a lot of little moments oh yeah and they also this the 
herbivorous butcher also does cheeses, vegan, vegan friendly cheeses nice. as well. But yeah, they have like a sandwich of some sort at the coffee shop in the cart that they usually have out by the hospital. And our mutual friend that's a vegan. No, she thinks she's just a vegetarian. I was going to say, if it's who I'm thinking of, um, vegetarian. But she like absolutely like loves that sandwich. Yeah. The, is it the Bami yep. sandwich? Yep. That actually got vet- voted the like best sandwich in town. And I haven't like had it yet. That's like the only food I think they carry on the cart is okay. by, by Mayo. Is I think they only do coffee and then like that sandwich. Yeah. Because uh, they have a bunch of like bowls. Yeah. Like the one I mentioned. And uh, they have a they have a just a slam and grilled cheese that Jared's been enjoying. <laughs> oh, that sounds really like a good it's like adult so grilled good. cheese. Sounds it's, so good right now. The bread is like it's luxurious. I've never described bread as luxurious, but like this is not the grilled cheese that you make at home when With you're like, like I don't want to make real cheap food. sandwich bread. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. That's always the best when you get like a good like sourdough or something and you make mm. yourself the grilled cheese and you're like, yeah, I'm being classy right now. Yeah, I'm adulting the right way. Right. Now that speaking of that, we have French bread because we're having lasagna for dinner and I'm like, mm, I might have to make some French bread grilled cheese tomorrow. Yeah. I've got some multi-grain chips in my purse that I need to <laughs> snack on. I donated blood before coming over and no, I, I was a little sad though because like normally they've got, I, I, it's like nine baskets of different cookies and these cookies are the size of your face. I know they're so tiny now. I don't know what the fuck happened. They gave blood like a week or two ago and I was like what happened to the giant cookies? Like, I, it's all I like I ate like a tiny breakfast so that the cookie would fit into my calorie count for the day <laughs> and then I was like this is a tiny cookie. I took one of those cookies home I mean, and still, ate it for a week. It was still really good. Yeah. But yeah, I'm like, since when are they tiny? But yeah, so first of all, they're really tiny. And then they were out of like all the cookies except like the oat raisin. Aww. I was like, fuck you guys. And I, see, I donated it like nine in the morning. So yeah. they were all still like full. Yeah. Because they're, they're limiting it to appointments only. Yep, yep. I usually I usually do the like after hours donation because then I don't have to pay for parking right. downtown. But then also like I don't have With to cut their into work. Parking, I don't think you have to. They they have their own lot right now. I know, but I like can never Paranoid. figure out where the lot is. Oh. So I always well, just, they just park moved, in the they ramp. just moved it. Yeah. Like it's behind the building now. It's weird. Yeah. I and there there's a ton of construction, so I'm like, fuck it, I'm just gonna park where I know and uh be okay Walk. with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um but yeah. So I was a little sad about the cookies situation. I blame COVID. It's hard to bake cookies now when you can't have as many people in a cookie. That's probably what it is, is they're probably buying them from a different vendor versus like baking them on site or something. God, can you imagine if they baked them on site? Like that's your job to bake the blood donor cookies. I would feel so special. I would. That'd be a cool job because you just have a task. You do it all day and you go home and you're like, OK, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Well, that's the thing. That's the same. The reason the the cookies that they used to use at the blood donor center anyways used to be the same ones they sold, at least in the employee cafeteria. Oh, snap. That's crazy. So, but I haven't been into the employee cafeteria for a long time, even like pre-COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been resentful of the idea of like spending money where I work. It's like, no, you're giving me money and I'm just going to give it back to you. Oh, yeah. Especially <laughs> since at where I work, they have like a system so you can like sign up and they'll just get deducted from your paycheck. It's oh, God. so easy to that let that get out of control. so dangerous. I, uh, Jared's brother used to work at a, a meat 
meat processing plants yeah. a few towns over and they had a situation like that and like everything in the cafeteria was like oh it was so reasonably priced and it was really easy to just eat lunch and snack there all day and it, it comes right out of your out of your account it's right so you don't easy. have to carry your wallet like, yeah like you're see, not conscious of I, what you're spending <laughs> i wouldn't say our cafeteria was reasonably priced no there, there were certain things where i would be like oh that that's a lot of money for not a, there were certain things that yeah like you got a lot of food and it was like three bucks and it was like, okay, this is like genuinely a great deal. Yeah. But yeah, not all of it. I like to think that they place the like really expensive cafeterias where all the like upper management people work who can spend the money. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> if they're not, they should. You can take that business idea, guys. Right. Just credit me. Name it the the Emily Cafeteria. Right. Make it real fancy. Savvy bitch cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so enough about blood donation cookies and cafeteria names that yep. are amazing. Uh, I do have a say their name this week. So this week we want to try and promote uh, LGBTQ plus artists, organizations, podcasts. Just we got a theme going because right. like it's we said, theme. it's, it's pride month. and we're proud of you guys and we love you. So um my say their name is actually extremely appropriate. Uh, so last week we lightly touched on what's going on in Minnesota. And I mean, it's really going on all across the world uh, with the with the protests and Black Lives Matter marches and just this increased attention on police brutality and racially charged murder. And like it's sad because it's been going on for fucking ever and right. it's like now we're seeing it using smartphones but imagine what was happening when no one was looking and by no one i mean us less people yeah yeah, yeah where it was just hey this happened to me well i mean you know did it really was it that bad and here's the thing like as women i can totally get that sentiment right? <laughs> like oh come on now like well what did you do to provoke them exactly. like were, were you cooperating were yeah, you, you looking probably shady? resisted arrest it's, oh yeah. yeah like it's it's fucking awful so there is an organization in minneapolis that has literally just popped up because of the Minneapolis uprising, and they are called the Gay Fan Brigade. I know. They're fabulous. Yeah, that's Get great. ready. It gets better. So uh, it started out as like a group of friends from the LGBTQ plus community, uh, queer people, drag artists, musicians, and they were all like, hey, we need to do something about this. And most of them, I believe, are people of color. I'm not familiar with everyone who's participating, yeah. so, but it was started by people of color who are like, what the fuck is happening? We need to get in there. And so they started uh, soliciting donations for supplies, uh, helping people who uh, had their groceries cut off because of the uprising, uh, helping clean up businesses, helping protesters who are getting nailed by rubber bullets and tear gas, right. unprovoked guys. Like, seriously, this is fucking awful. And it grew. It just it just exploded. Everyone else, everyone's like, how can I help? So it grew from it went from this like very small group to this bigger thing. And they're able they've been able to coordinate like medical support to oh, help nice. people who are injured, yeah. like on the ground. And it's it's absolutely crazy. They act they just ran out of room to hold physical supplies. So now they're like asking more for monetary donations. And so I don't know if they named themselves or someone else came up with the name, but they are now the uh queer fan brigade did i say gay fan brigade before 
No, I think he's a queer. Okay. In my notes, I don't know why I wrote gay fan brigade. I'm awful. She's re-editing her notes. Even I though the only other I wrote it right in one place. Is me. Well, here here's the thing. So I'm super embarrassed because I've been helping them set up their social media because I know one of the organizers, Alexandra Rocks, the amazing drag king from Minneapolis, yeah. who I've mentioned on the podcast before. He was doing the uh, the live drag shows on Instagram, and he was a part of the like Wait, the queer circu- circus. Yeah, I didn't know you knew him. Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, we built his website. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I so I've worked with him in the past, and I've been hel- I've been like doing a little side hustle, helping him update his site, and uh, so he's part of this. And so he reached out, and he's like, "Can you help me like get this together?" I was like, "Absolutely!" Like it's literally the least I can do. <laughs> right? You know, like I'm not up in the cities, I can't be on the ground. You know, helping them like, set yes, this up. Please and- let me help you. Yeah. So, um. The the work is not done. They're out there every night. They're also working to like uh, vet marches. So there have been some uh, concerns over marches getting started online and them not being legit or them being like traps. And so they've been posting on their Facebook and everything about uh, marches that are legit. Uh, They've also been posting about other initiatives. For example, the Minneapolis School Board voted recently on whether or not to renew a million-dollar contract with the Minneapolis Police Department. They were posting about that and encouraging people to write in and be like, hey, maybe we don't need cops in schools who disproportionately target children of color, guys, especially after all this. And they voted not to renew. Yeah. Like, if people are listening and... Now more than ever, we need to make our voices heard. And so I really encourage everyone, like them on Facebook at Queer Fan Brigade, Instagram at Queer Fan Brigade, all one word, all our case. And if you can't donate supplies, you can donate to them monetarily through Venmo at Queer Fam hyphen Brigade. And that's a capital Q, capital F, capital B. I don't know if the caps matter. I don't use Venmo enough. Yeah, I don't know either. But seriously, even if you don't donate to them specifically, and I'm talking to white people right now. I'm talk I know we have a lot of white listeners, and I'm talking to them because I know our listeners of color fucking know and they don't need me talking down to them. Do something. We all need to do something right, right now. Whether you go to a march, whether you donate supplies, whether you donate money to an organization right. that supports people something. of color. I mean And here's the thing. If you can't do any of that, educate yourself. Start reading. Start listening to people of color. There's so much information out there. I had a a friend on Facebook, and very nice lady, and she wrote, she's like, hey, guys, uh, I'm not trying to start a fight or anything. I'm just really curious. What is wrong with the phrase, all lives matter? Like, like, can someone explain that to me? And (laughs) unfortunately... It was a lot of uh, her white Facebook friends saying how it's actually not that big of a deal because all lives do matter. Oh, Guys, that's not the point. And I. That's terrible. All lives don't matter right now because not all lives are being treated like they matter. That's the point. Right. It's you not- don't have to say all lives matter. People, black people are being forced to claim my life matters. And that's a problem. Right. The fact that a, a group has to stand up and be like, Guys. I matter too, or as well, or as much, or anything, is terrible. And I, I know we it have a lot of... We shouldn't need a hashtag, Black Lives Matter, or All Lives Matter. Pe- that should be inherent. Yeah. 
So please stop saying all lives matter, guys. It's like, uh, you know, uh, I know we have a lot of female listeners. So you know how infuriating it is to say, hey, sexual assault's a big deal and should be taken seriously. It's not just locker room talk. It's not fucking funny. That's exhausting because it should be inherent. But we're put in the position where we have to say it because shit is fucked up. And black people are being put in a position where they have to remind everyone that their lives matter. And... I really wish that instead of reaching out to Facebook, she'd just Google it because there are a trillion articles out or there explaining it a lot a better than her white a friends. person of color. Well, and even then, they're a great resource, but we can't be relying on our friends of color to hold our hands. We well, have well, not to do even the legwork. Even if she was just like, hey, I don't understand this, this, or this is how I understand it. Could you help me? Right. Right. But guys, we are living in the information age. The right. internet is straight up magic. Especially right now. Like there is so much information out there. As long as you're going to reputable sources, you're yeah. going to find what you're looking for if you yeah. have questions. So seriously, if you can't march, if you can't donate, if you can't support financially, that is what you should be doing right now. We all need to be doing something because this needs to fucking stop. If you don't like the uprisings, if you don't like the violence, if you don't like any of this, well, stop it at the source because this right. didn't come out of no nowhere right all right so anyway queer fan brigade find them on instagram facebook venmo again that's queer fam hyphen brigade they're also going to get a youtube set up i'm hell i'm trying to get that set up i just need some extra information <laughs> didn't know you were big in into knowing about youtube it was a big part of my previous job like like i don't know anything about like editing videos but i can set up your youtube account and like try to f- i the cool thing about millennials is we can figure shit out. Oh, yeah. Like, we just get in there. Like, I can't tell you how to do it, but if I get in there, I can find my way around. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, and guys, half sorry for the rant. I feel like it needed to be said. Maybe went all a little long. But now we're going to our wine. Yeah, it's your wine. Oh, shit. You're right. <laughs> I'm talking too much. I hate it. I know, it makes me feel like I'm talking not enough, and I'm just, like, sitting here. It's, first of all, I love you, and you're an amazing co-host, and I never sit here going, Kelly, fucking say something. I'm also feeling a little manic. Maybe it's the lack of blood and uh, all the orange juice I was chugging, but I'm, I'm like, ready to go. You're ready to fight right now. I I am. I'm like manic. I'm pissed off. I'm like feisty. All right. So this is another wine from my uh, my box of wine. And uh, it is a rosé of Pinot Noir, which I don't think we've had before. And it's like a deep pink color, but mm-hmm. it's, it's see-through. Yeah, it's pretty. It's clear, see-through, opaque. Opaque. Words. Something. Anyway. Um... It is uh, a Chris Baker wine. It's a 2019 from Willamette Valley or Willamette. I don't know. Words are hard. So it says on the back of the bottle, Willamette is known for its elegant 100-point pinots. But if you ask me, that's just scratching the surface. This is Chris talking. I'm going to make him sound really sexy. 
The possibilities for Willamay wines are endless. Every inch of this region is unique thanks to its layered soils and mineral and rock composition. That's why it's one of my favorite places in the world to make wine. And with the help of angels, I'm unearthing its best treasures yet. Oh God, Chris. Your funding gave me the chance to craft a rosé that captures the heart of Oregon, made from Willamay Valley Pinot. You'll love it at first taste. Thanks for letting me show off what Willamay can do. Your winemaker, Chris Baker. Chris, you saucy son of a bitch. <laughs> That's funny. But again, you this saucy is uh, son of a bitch. This is from that. Uh, Shit, I can't remember the the name of the the whole deal. But they they call you angels. They call the people who yep. buy the wine angels. So that's why all these bottles of wine call you an angel. And listeners, you are fucking angels. You're the best. You are. So I don't know what this is gonna taste like because that said nothing. It was just yeah, like right? the Willamay Valley is tits. Drink the wine. <laughs> so uh, cheers to Pride Month. Cheers to Pride. Cheers to Pride. I'm so glad we can clink again. I missed it. Smells good. Oh. It's very subtle. Yeah. There's not like it's maybe it's just because last week we drank a a wine that like punched you in the face. That wine fucked me up. (laughs) But this is very it's very subtle, but it's very good. I really like this. It it has it's like strong on the front end and then it mellows out really quick. And you know what it is? It's strong on it's the front like end. It's like the my hills first... of the Willamay Valley rising and then suddenly falling. <laughs> I was, like, at first I was like, man, it doesn't taste like anything. Yeah, and then it's like strong and then it yeah, like tapers off. Yeah, you're right. Really it is nice. really subtle. I like it, though. because When I read Pinot Noir, I was like, oh, man, this is going to kick us in the face. Because I think one of the last Pinot Noirs we had, we were like... Oh my God, I'm in church. I'm at confession and I'm so stressed. <laughs> right. Yeah, Pinot Noir is usually, I would say, a pretty strong really red heavy wine. and dense. But mm. this is a very nice Pinot Noir. Rose. I like this though. And also, we are drinking out of our Whining About Herstory wine glasses, which Kelly so lovingly made because mm-hmm. she is the best. Yeah, we need to like start selling these things. Would you buy them if we sold them? I will make more if you will buy them. Everyone's saying yes, please. Actually, uh, if you donate to our Patreon, we will send you one. I believe that's at the... <laughs> oh, shit. $10 mark. <laughs> oh, I swallowed down the wrong pipe. Oh, no. No wine is good going down the wrong pipe. The Willamay Valley has a dark side. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm Ooh. I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong, and everyone in Oregon is like, Emily, you dumb bitch. <laughs> There's my connection because my story happens in Oregon. Really? A chunk of it. Oh, my God. All right. Speaking of that, I will get into it. Yeah. So today, I'm covering Marie Equi. Equi. It's E-Q-U-I. We're going to say Equi. We're going to say Equi. It's cute. Yeah, it is. That's going to be my new fake last name. Equi. Alice Equi. Alice Equi. That works. Yeah. <laughs> Alice is my fake bar I name. I already knew that. <laughs> so Marie was born um, to, 
in, into the working class in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which I don't know where that is. I'm pretty sure I don't know if that exists. It's on anymore. the East Coast, somewhere in Massachusetts. Yeah, um, it's like in that that top dealy that sticks out yeah. at the top, you know, like the America's raising they call its it, hand. You know, New England. Yeah, it's it's like America's raising its hand. Like, hey guys, I'm here. Why are we sucking so bad right now? I yeah, have no right. idea. Oh God! Side note: I saw this really funny picture the other day. Where it was like this giant like ship in the background and then a guy on a surfboard holding an umbrella like going the opposite direction. And the ship was labeled, you know, like the world fighting coronavirus. And then the, the guy with the umbrella and the surfboard said the U.S. on a side quest. God damn it. <laughs> was like, That's so true and so funny. Oh, my God. Like, I'm not making light of the situation, but it just that description of it just kind of made me chuckle well you know what pisses me off is like oh just like two weeks ago we had a bunch of people like storming the capitol building with assault rifles who were like reopen the hair salons and now and but oh no no the protesters are taking it too far now like shut up i'm just angry yeah i think a lot of people are angry. i'm gonna deal with my anger by donating money to queer fan brigade there you go um okay so this new bedford massachusetts was very big into like textile manufacturing so it was a lot of factories a lot of stuff like that her father was italian and her mother was irish so she very much grew up in the sting of anti-immigration and deplorable work conditions still like that was what for she that grew to, up yeah. still waiting for that to pass it just yeah, seems exactly. to change flavors <laughs> it really does um she witnessed the deaths of three siblings to childhood diseases and observed much of her mother's life defined by pregnancy, childbirth, and child care. As yeah. kind of was the thing back and then. And child death. Because is the late 1800s. Yeah. Or 1900s. It was 18... Why didn't I write down her birth date? That's weird. Everyone just pretend I did. <laughs> um, so she was born in 1872. Okay. April 7th. 1872 oh, she just had her birthday yeah nice happy birthday um so she she you know she kind of that that's how she grew up is all this stuff um she was a decent student but she dropped out of high school to support her family pretty um, common at the time exactly working yeah. in the textile mills um hopefully she didn't get stabbed by any machinery no but she did end up um leaving in 1892 and her and her high school girlfriend Bessie Holcomb um decided to set up a homestead on the Oregon along the Columbia River in Oregon so like her and her high school sweetheart just were like nope we're done and they went to homestead guys let's remember uh this is the 1800s see lesbians have been around forever yeah gay people have been around forever you just weren't paying attention. Yeah. And even, there was also systematic elimination and targeting and horrible right. things. I even included like a subnote of something I read just of the late 19th century in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't same sex affairs were not generally discussed. Um, however, in some spheres of society in within the United States, people recognized, quote unquote, romantic friendships among women jesus christ um they tended to be wealthy and professional women um and sometimes they even undertook what was called like boston marriages which was like um it was like a very it was it kind of varied between like emotional and affectionate intimacy 
and usually involved some sexual activity, but not always. Like, I don't I'm, know. Like the definition of it, I was like, me and Emily probably could have be could be considered. I was going to say the way you're marriage. describing this, I'm like. Uh, why does that sound familiar? Right. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. They're saying, like, it doesn't have to be sexual. And obviously, you can have a romantic relationship without having sex involved. Exactly. Asexual people are real. Look it up. But part of me is like, are they just saying that because they don't want to imagine, like, women getting down with each yeah, other? Yeah, probably. Like, no, no, no. They're just really, 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 really good friends, but they don't bone. Like, right. what? Uh, Marie once remarked that as a young woman, she had spurned the interests of young men and expressed little interest in a heterosexual pairing or marriage. Her language, her words, um, pairing or how how clinical heterosexual pairing, pairing or marriage. marriage. I, know, I do I not like, express hmm. interest. You'll see why that she uses such proper terms. Um, her lengthy relationship with Bessie Holcomb from 1982 until 1901 um, was dissimilar to those Boston marriages, mainly because Marie was a working class like woman. She didn't have that like luxury, basically, to that the other women participating in Boston marriages had, because that was almost all like wealthy upper class women who had the independence to in engage in romantic relationships on their own terms versus being tied down to a guy or exactly you know um, they, they they had privilege exactly okay yeah. so marie and bessie lived a, a fairly quiet life as quote-unquote close companions i love that they used that in, the, like, the, in their research i read i was like god damn it funny so they had a small house um and several rocky acres outside the city of the dallas Literally, the Dallas. I was going to say, is that city? How you supposed to say it? <laughs> um, one of my favorite things about Marie is something that happened in 1893, which was and it was reported on at the time was a, a sensational ruckus earlier in the day that drew crowds of merchants and shoppers to the town center. Marie, pa- this is like from theirs. Marie paced back and forth in front of the office of Reverend Orson D. Taylor, a land developer and also the superintendent of the Wasco Independent Academy. Taylor had reneged on paying Bessie her full salary for teaching at the institution, and frustrated over the mistreatment of her companion, Marie horsewhipped Taylor when he tried to escape from his office. Yeah, Marie! Get that note paying some bitch! Yeah. So Woo! she was like, you will not skip out on paying my lover. Fuck you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ladies, get yourself a partner who will horsewhip a son of a bitch when they don't pay you. Right. Um, many people in the town actually applauded Marie's assault because they, yeah. they viewed Reverend Taylor as a crook who peddled in like fraudulent land. Everyone knew he was an asshole. Yeah, basically, like. A lot of people said, like, you know, he would, you know, sell you up on this land and then you'd go there and it would be like a piece of shit that you couldn't farm. And so they're like, no, fuck you. You had it coming, dude. You know, I was actually talking with Jared about this today. He was reading a book where the villain's name was like the preacher or the reverend. I was like, I know there are plenty of people out there who make a really honest and legitimate living as preachers or reverends. That being said, whenever like someone named the reverend or the preacher comes up, I'm like, oh, no. That's why there's like a character in Firefly that's just like the reverend. And you never, because it ended so early, you never yeah. get to find out his backstory. And he seems like a really nice guy, but I'm He's like. He's got a past, though. That dude oh, yeah. was shady. Oh, yeah. He, he was, was so, so shady. Cool, though. I loved yeah. him. Um, was anyways. that Shepard? Was that his name? I thought it was just like the reverend. Oh. Anyway, this isn't about Firefly. Yeah, no. This well, isn't the Firecast. Yeah. 
<laughs> that may or may not be a podcast. Yeah, I don't we're know. Gonna, like, sub, I made that sub up. make the pirates. Okay, anyways, <laughs> but the town actually later held a raffle for the whip Marie used to whip this guy. And oh the, my and god! And the proceeds of of raffling that whip was actually given to the two women. Yes. So the town this was town the town was all right. on board. Yeah. Can we bring that back? Right. Um. <laughs> So that just kind of shows you that Marie was, you know, obviously like very into justice and she wasn't afraid to be like outspoken and like super bold about she it. She will drop you. She will drag you if right. you fuck around. In 1897, the pair moved to San Francisco, California, where Marie began um, studying medicine, actually. That's why I was wow. like, that, that's kind of why. Okay. Yeah. I was like, that's why she uses proper terms. That's why probably. she's so clinical. <laughs> Um, she completed two years of coursework, first at the Physicians and Surgeons Medical College and then at the University of California Medical Department. Um, afterwards, she relocated to Portland, Oregon without Bessie. So that's where they, they separated ways. Okay. Um, and completed her studies at the University of the or- Oregon Medical Department in 1903. Okay. You know what? I, I have to say, I bet Bessie, every relationship after that, she evaluated them like, would this person horse whip, whip a bitch for yeah, me? Exactly. Maybe that, I mean I'll that's have. how that's that would have been my standard after. Yeah, that, like you the know? bar like, has been raised and it's it's a horse whipping high. <laughs> right. So this is kind of like a sub note before I get into all her other stuff. Um, but Marie did live much of her most of her adult life with other women. Um, but she was never what she would consider a separatist. She treated male patients and female patients at her medical practice. You know, so she wasn't like, I'm only for women. Oh, is that what they would have called a separatist? A separatist someone back who then, yeah. only saw a specific gender of pe- yep. patients? Okay. but So even though she considered herself a lesbian, she was like, no, I'm still going to treat men. Like, I'm well, a doctor. Because being a doctor is not a sexual thing. Exactly. <laughs> In 1905, she undertook the longest lesbian relationship of her life after meeting a younger woman named Harriet Speckert, who was the niece of the Olympia Brewing Company. The f- like the founder of him named Leopold Schmidt, which is a great name. That is a great name. I thought you were just going to stop. Like she was the granddaughter of the brewing company. No, the niece. <laughs> yeah, the niece the of the brewing, brewing company. company. That brewing um, company got a little crazy one right? night. <laughs> Harriet's family was vehemently like they did not want her being with this other woman. Yeah. Um, and she actually, um, Harriet actually went to court for years with her mother and brother just to get her an inheritance. Oh, shit. Um, They shared a life together for a long time, and actually 10 years into their relationship, they adopted uh, an infant. Really? Yeah. Who they named named Mary because Harriet had always wanted to raise a child. And so, you know, Marie was just like, yeah, that's fine. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Um, As an adult, Mary recalls calling um, Harriet Ma and Marie Dobb but she thinks it's because every like as she was growing up, everyone called Marie Doc. I was just gonna and say, so is she, it like doctor? She, she thinks she she you know kind of picked up on that, not necessarily dad. That's so you cute. Know. Oh my god, I want I want a kid to call me Doc, not because I'm a doctor, but just because that's cool, right? Um, I'm just gonna finish out the relationships. Okay, quick. Um, the two women did separate eventually. Um, kind of in later years, um, but they remained close until Harriet died in 1927. Um, but Marie became involved with other prominent women. She became smitten with Margaret Sanger, who was a big birth control oh, advocate. Yeah. Um, 
And she wrote a lot of love letters to her and that they kind of like reference sexual intimacy between the two of them, but technically nothing was ever confirmed. But well, that's none of our fucking business anyway. Yeah, there's so like she even after her like longest relationship, she went on to like still have other relationships with prominent women. Yeah, because she's also a big deal being a hotshot doctor. Right. And her intimate relationships first with Bessie and then with Harriet in the early 1900s, established her as the first or one of the first publicly known lesbians on the U.S. West Coast. Wow. Because she she didn't hide it. She was like, yeah, this is my partner. So that's how the West Coast happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, I know same-sex uh, marriage was illegal in California for a long time. Like, it was legal and they took it away. But I know, it was really it's, weird. It's always had kind of this... Um, reputation for being more progressive and more open even especially amongst the lgbtq plus community like you got i think it's height street harvey milk you know yep uh and now i'm just like it all started with marie yeah right exactly (laughs) so in the aftermath of the 1906 san francisco earthquake and fire which i think we've actually referenced in one of our other podcasts that somebody else went there I think it was one of our undercover journalists. It was. It was yep. one of your um, stunt girl My journalists. Stunt, yeah, I was yeah. Like, that sounds familiar. But Marie joined um, a group of doctors and nurses that went in to provide medical care for people stricken by the disaster and actually earned a commendation from the United States Army for doing so. Awesome. And she was like, why don't these people have ambulances? And then your stunt girl exactly. reporter was like, I'm going to give them ambulances. I got this. Don't worry. <laughs> um Marie became one of the first 60 women to become a physician in Oregon, because remember, she went back to Oregon. Um, She established a general medicine practice in Portland um, with emphasis on health concerns, particularly of women and children. But like I said, she wasn't a separatist. She still treated men, but she emphasized women and children. Yeah. Probably after seeing her mom going through all Oh, God. And losing all those fucking kids. Right. She was probably like... That was not the way to word it. She was probably like, I need to help women get, you know, get through this stuff. Right. Um, so her, she became a very publicly well-known physician, particularly after the 1906, you know, earthquake and fire. That was like her front page moment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because I mean, that was one of the largest natural disasters with like a huge amount of deaths. Like, yeah. it was ridiculous. Um, sorry, my ear like popped. <laughs> um, so like she became really well-known and at some point between 1905 and 1915, which I know is a 10-year gap, but people don't really know when she started, but she began to provide abortions, okay. which is still a hot topic. I was going to say, it, it's interesting that, you know, she's in these, she's in same-sex relationships. She has adopted a child with a same-sex partner. Yep. She's a doctor. She's, you know, she's, she's well-known. Like, she's she, well she's not known. hiding anything. Yeah. She's just... This isn't like, oh, 10 years after she died, we found all these letters. Who knew? And it's crazy because the, we're still, like, fighting about this shit. Like, right. same-sex couples can't adopt. Shut up. Oh, they can't be doctors. Like, Shut up! She was doing this in, you know, the, the early, early 1900s. Well, technically it's the 2000. Like, I don't know. Centuries are weird. Because the 1900s are like the actual age. But she's yeah. the early 20th century. Exactly. And we're still fighting about this. It's I'm ridiculous. Like, like so just, no, people already did it. It's fine. So shut up. Um. So what she would do... Because she wouldn't, she would give you an abortion regardless of your social class if, you, if mm-hmm. you needed one. And what she would often do is charge the wealthy women to cover the expenses of the poor. 
oh, what a crazy concept. If you can afford it, you Charge pay. Yeah, but right. if you're super broke, like maybe, you know, some of those wealthy people can like cover you. Yeah. Huh. God, I wonder if that could ever work. So I love that Marie like came up with that and was like, you know what? This is just going to be easier. I'm going to charge these women and that you know, overcharging them because they can afford it will pay for the ones that can't. Yeah. Oh, my God. Huh. Good for Funny. her. I know. Um, she did, you know, the city and state tried to shut her down. That still happens today. Yeah. Um, But she never faced legal consequences. And wow. unlike some of her other colleagues, she retained her general medical practice. And she didn't, but she also didn't fo- solely focus on abortions. She did both. Yeah. You know. Well, th- everyone knew she was going to horsewhip them if they fucked yeah, with right. her. <laughs> what a what a blessing though, because so many uh, abortions at that time were done by non reputable people. They were extremely dangerous. A lot of women died or like could never have children again, and like it was it was a really bad situation. And I'm I'm sure it was not the best situation, just because it being the early 20th century right. and all this is on the hush hush. But you're having a actual doctor right, exactly. and a you're woman not some, like, who knows female anatomy doing this creep doing it. You I know? I read this article and it was basically a bunch of women being interviewed about having to get abortions early on, and one of the running themes was there was no sexual education and there was no contraception. There was no, no condoms back then. So no. it. So it wasn't even like you could prevent it. It's not like, oh, condoms are for losers. How did I get pregnant? Right. It wasn't something like that. But one of the things they talked about was like, I don't want to get graphic, but you know, like the coat, coat hanger imagery. Yeah, it's, it's it was a lot of a that. Lot of and figuring were, out how to do it on your own. And, and yeah, women were getting instructions like a do it, do it at home. And they were bleeding out because oh, yeah. plenty of women died. Yeah, it was it's awful. So Marie saved a bunch of people's lives oh yeah 100 percent. oh my god speaking of birth control <laughs> marie was an active member of portland's birth control league Wow! which would help disperse information about birth control which at the time was considered an illegal activity yep super um, dumb <laughs> and actually this was this is when margaret sanger came to town that was yep. the woman i mentioned that she kind of ended up having a fling with later um the authorities arrested margaret marie and other women and men who were distributing this information about oh, birth control. Good job, gentlemen. Well, I'm sure they don't want to deal with it. Right, you know? exactly. But still, good on them. Yeah, no, absolutely, because it's largely been considered a woman's problem and a woman's right, responsibility. Exactly. It's they're the ones that can have kids, so it's their problem. Yeah, but, you know, God forbid, you know, she gets pregnant and then she gets to start making decisions about her body. Right, exactly. Um, the judge on the case found them all guilty, ordered fines for the men, which ended up being suspended, and no fines for the women. Sexism for the women? I know, right? And even after that, Marie just continued doing the work on birth control and just was just like, meh, fuck it. <laughs> oh, what? I'm sorry. There were no consequences? All right, cool. I just had to take a take a Sunday afternoon for you to like scowl at me right, and then exactly. nothing happened. <laughs> um, during what would be known as like, the progressive era, which is generally considered about in 1895 to 1920 ish. Mm-hmm. You know how history is. Give or take 10 years, probably. Yeah. Um, Oregon adopted some civic and political reforms that became the model for the rest of the U.S., which I actually didn't know. Some of which included initiative and referendum processes and recalled elected officials that dealt with like U.S. senators. I don't know what that meant. That's what my notes say. Okay. Um, 
But during this time, Marie was working closely with several campaigns to secure the women's right to vote in Oregon. And so I think that's kind of what it had to do with because uh, in 1912 is when Oregon won the won the right to vote. Women's wow, right to vote. Wow, Oregon. You know, is Oregon the state that was founded to be like a whites-only utopia? I think so. It was, it was either Oregon or Wyoming. Oh, it may have been, it Wyoming. May have been Wyoming. Shit. I, I was, I was going to say like... Man, this is all sounding a little too good to be true. Was this the super white state? <laughs> it might have been Wyoming. I wonder if it's Wyoming because that sounds like white oming. Right. Um, you just said it really fast. So Marie just ke- keeps on trucking it, even after 1912 and the women's vote in Oregon. In 1913, she visits the strike of a can- by cannery workers in East Por- Portland. Um, these workers were primarily women protesting about poor working conditions Terrible hours, wages that were only five to eight cents an hour. Tale as old as time, right? And Song just basically rhyme shit, basically. And so Marie went down there to kind of like help them put like you know a little more oomph behind it. At this time, she was more... showing her support. She was wielding her influence exactly. Um, and she became one of the leaders of this like party that was trying to like help these women. Partially be due to the fact that, yeah, she was a physician and she had that, like, standing behind her. Yeah. It's um, it's not just a bunch of poor women who can be written off as whiny factory workers who should be thankful for the opportunity, if you ask me. It's like, no, there are prominent, well-educated people getting behind them. Exactly. Um, and she was right on the picket line with them um, and to the point where she got clubbed by an officer because she got mad that a 30-year-old pregnant woman was dragged away by the police. Oh, my God. So she got angry and, like, started retaliating. And so they, they Why are we her. still doing this? Yeah. Why are we still fighting about this shit? Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> After the picketing continued for several more days, and unfortunately, the strike ended, but on terms unsatisfactory to the women. Again, tale as old as time. This was a turning point for Marie. The the police brutality that she witnessed radicalized her, and she actually became almost somewhat of an anarchist after this. Mm-hmm. Um, like she very much was just like, okay, obviously, like the progressive way of doing things is not working. It's it's that situation where you're trying to do everything right, you're trying to play by the rules, you're trying to do it the way that everyone says you should, and it still doesn't work because you're trying to placate the people who hold all the power and who are oppressing you. Exactly. And, you know, even when you play by their rules, well, I just want you to shut up and go away. Exactly. So at a certain point, what the fuck else are you supposed to do? So after this strike with the women... She became a big voice in Portland's unemployment crisis in general, um, but apparently they had a very big unemployment crisis from 1913 to 1914. But she would regularly march with jobless men and women, demanding better working conditions. She engaged in the industrial workers of the world's free speech fights, supported lumber workers, declared herself a radical socialist and an anarchist, and aligned herself strongly with the industrial workers of the world, which is like a group of socialists, essentially. You know what's interesting is like, j- just from what you're telling me about her and the way she's behaving and the way she's uh, advocating, I'm like, man, she was a radical at that time, but now she's like 
everyone else. Right. You know, exactly. like the line has moved, guys. For what radical is, yeah. Yeah. It used to be really easy to be a rebel. Just wear pants. Right. And enjoy sex with your partner. So um, if you know anything about the U.S. history and U.S. timelines, a lot of this is happening leading up to World War One. Bum, bum, bum. Um, Marie was very strongly against the preparedness campaigns that happened in the United States. Um, she believed that a lot of the war efforts were basically cash grabs from companies that just wanted to make money off of the suffering of people. I hate how familiar and recent all of this sounds. Like, if you right? just changed the year, I wouldn't bat an eye. Um, Portland and probably most of the rest of the nation at this time kind of entered a phase of hyper-nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marie very much became a political outsider, but she still continued to protest pre-war campaigns. Um, she unfurled a banner reading, quote, Prepare to die, working men. J.P. Morgan and Co. want preparedness for profit. She wasn't wrong, you right? Guys. <laughs> uh, however, sadly, she was attacked by others in the um, in the march, and a fight ensued, leading to her getting arrested. Mm. So that sucked. Yeah. Um, that didn't. Once again, didn't stop her. She continued to protest as the U.S. entered the war in 1917. However. The U.S. at this time also passed what was known as the Espionage Act, which it was basically like they could arrest anyone they viewed as a spy. And oh, the Witch Hunter Act. Yeah, they okay. bas- and they very much viewed Marie as a dangerous threat to national security. Oh, my God. Um, so they charged and convicted her of sedition. You know what I think is is interesting is like you hear all these stories about... People who are like, hey, the way it's working or the way it is now isn't working and maybe people deserve better rights and, you know, better working conditions. And then the the country is suddenly able to, like, label them an enemy of the state and deal with them. I'm like, why can't we do that with, like, KKK leaders, guys? Oh, no, then it's a then it's a, you know, imposition on your civil rights. Like, what? Yeah, exactly. These two things are one of these things. It's not like the other. One of these things needs to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> right. Um, Marie attempted to appeal higher courts, but her arguments were rejected. Um, that's actually a very common mm-hmm. theme in this. How- it was all fake. It was all for show. Yeah. 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 You, How- you however, Woodrow Wilson at the last minute commuted the three year sentence she received to one year and a day. Okay. I know. Um, she served her time in San Quentin State Prison, which is kind of notorious, if you know. Yeah. 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 Uh, she was inmate number 34410. She was 48 years old at the time. And the women she shared quarters with, there was 31 other women in her cell block. And they were all lesbians. That would be funny. No. But many of them were serving sentences for homicide, theft, and performing abortions. She was the only, like, political arrest in the bunch okay so that sucks oh my god um she suffered a lot of um health problems while in prison she had um contracted tuberculosis as a child but it wasn't really a problem but being in prison and confined conditions caused a lot of flare-ups for her so she was sick quite at the time she tried to maintain her morale um because with the many visit, like a lot of people visited her, a lot of people wrote her letters. She had a lot of allies, exactly. Like, and and they stayed with her. Yeah. Um. She did seek early release by either pardon or parole. Um. But the U.S. Attorney General like continuously blocked 
any of that. Yeah. Um, she left San Quentin on August 9th, 1921. Um, it was a reduced sentence even past that year and a day because for good behavior behaviors, but she still had served nearly 10 months. Damn. Was she, I wonder if she was able to vote after she got out because at that point, yeah, right. all w- women across the United States earned the right to vote. But if she's considered a felon. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she's in there with murderers, like, like. The the title associated with those charges must have been pretty severe. I mean, espionage against the country. (laughs) Right. So as Marie was entering prison, um, America was very much trying to put the war behind them. But this was also the time of the Red Scare. Like, that was the whole, like, people were scared of communists and radicals. I thought that was, like, in the 50s. Mm -mm. This is what my sources said. Um, there was a heightened fear of radicals, labor unionists, communists that became known as the Red Scare. It started almost immediately after World War One. Wow. Yeah, it lasted a long time. Damn. Because I always think of it as like uh like the with Cold MacArthurism War. and yeah, yep. the Cold War and Wisconsin's like third greatest shame behind yeah, Jeffrey exactly. Dahmer and Ed Gein. <laughs> um so Marie re-entered public life with many of her political comrades imprisoned or greatly restricted. Mm-hmm. Protesting was greatly restricted. So she returned to her medical practice. For lengthy periods though, between 1926 and 1936, she regularly invited Elizabeth Gurley Flynn um to live with her and to help care for Mary, uh, Marie's daughter. That uh Elizabeth was the leader of the um, international, what, what did I say it was? The IWW. Um, I should have. Oh, the industrial workers. Of the world. Thank industrial you. workers of the world. I was like, I just put the acronym thinking I would remember it. I didn't know this I was going to be a test. Didn't. <laughs> um, uh, Flynn suffered a lot of serious, so Elizabeth suffered a lot of serious health problems, including exhaustion from overwork and depression from all the political setbacks, obviously, she was facing and, you know, just the stress, I'm sure, of running a socialist group in a time where that was not recommended. Yeah, it was a very difficult thing. Right. Um. So Marie, Elizabeth, and Mary, which is Marie's daughter, lived in Portland's West Side neighborhood. And like together for quite a while. In 1930, Marie suffered a heart attack, sold her medical practice, and asked Elizabeth to assist her for several more years. Um, she she did, but eventually she went back east and resumed her work, you know, as the leader of the IWW. And right. she actually became a national leader of the Communist Party of the USA eventually. Oh, shit. So she went on to do her own thing. She, she went back to it and she went hard in the paint. Right. Um, Marie lived a very quiet life after that. Um, her, so Flynn left or Elizabeth left and then her daughter eloped, kind of leaving her alone. You know, radical and labor leaders still revered her for her courage and compassion and would visit her quite often, you know, so she was kind of kept in the circle, but she wasn't like active. Yeah. She, she wasn't on the front lines anymore. Yeah. I mean, she's got, she had all those health problems in prison. I'm sure she had more flare-ups after prison because that was exacerbated. She's had a heart attack. You know, I'm, she's like in her retirement years now. Right. And I mean, she, she provided for her daughter quite, you know, quite well. And in 1950, Marie fractured her hip in a fall and spent a year at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Portland and then in a nursing home. Her, oh, her, man. And, 
her daughter did come back to care for her. Yeah. Like, you know, so yeah, she was a great mom and her daughter, you know, came back in the end to care for her as her mother had cared for her. And this was the daughter that she had adopted with her partner. Okay. Um, she died at Fairlawn Hospital on July 13th, 1952 at the age of 80. Whoa. So, I mean, she lived a good life. Yeah. Um, obituaries for her ran in newspapers across the country, obviously in Portland and New Bedford, but they were in the New York Times. They were like all over. She was a well-known figure. So she was recognized at the time of her death. Like it wasn't, you know, 20 years later. Hey, did you hear about this lady who did a bunch of cool stuff? Right. Um, one of her friends, Julia Rutila, described her as, quote, a woman of passion and conviction and a real friend of the have-nots of this world, end quote. She is buried alongside Harriet Speckart, which is the woman she had, like, that very passionate affair and wrote love letters to. Yep. Um, at Wilhelm's Portland Memorial. Harriet was the one she adopted their daughter with. No. Right? Oh. No. Who'd she adopt the daughter with? Um... Make me scroll back. I'm notes. so sorry. I I remembered IWW, but I don't remember who she had a kid right, with. Exactly. Um, oh no, Harriet is the one. Sorry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was getting it confused. I was getting Harriet Specker and um, Margaret Sanger confused in my mind. Okay. Because Margaret Sanger is the one that she like was really smitten with. Yeah. Harriet Specker is the one that. Yeah. They shared a daughter together and they lived together for like a good chunk of their lives. Okay. See, I should have you known were right. I, was, I right was wrong because I'm always right. Um. So yeah, they're buried next to each other, which is adorable. Um, That's and then sweet. In, in August of nineteen, not nineteen, August of twenty nineteen. So just oh. last year, she was one of the honorees inducted into the Rainbow Honor Walk, which is a walk of fame in San Francisco, um, noting LGBTQ plus people who have quote made significant contributions in their fields, which I didn't know existed. I, kn- I didn't know that existed. That's amazing. So, yeah, that is uh, Marie. Oh, Marie. I know. I found her. And the I was horse like, whipping lesbian. I right? love her. I love her. I found her and I was just like, wow. Like, not only was she progressive, like in the doctoring she did, she was progressive in the lifestyle she led. And, and then eventually like, her views on politics and like all of this stuff and she fought for everyone like she didn't just fight for you know white middle class women like we've seen before in some of our stuff yeah you know she was like no and she didn't even only fight for women like she would she She fought for labor she went and protested for labor like any laborers it didn't matter that's amazing and especially i mean she really did it right because like you said what we see time and time again uh Activism is often led by the most privileged people in a group, right. um, usually white people, usually middle class people, usually men, or, you know, not usually white people. It depends on what it is, obviously. But it's because they have the time, the education, and the resources to do it. However, it's like you have blinders on. You can't see outside of your immediate situation. So what sounds like a good situation for you may not be good for the, you know, the poor working class person who's just trying to get by, who doesn't have all the resources and education you do. Or as we've seen 
we, we talked about this last year when we did uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. The gay live mo- live movement was largely led by white middle class people. Right, and the second and they, they needed sacrificed to, they trans people, trans women. They sacrificed trans people to make advances for yep. their that's specific exactly interests. That's exactly what I was thinking about when we started this conversation. I, I was like, that's who pops into mind. I constantly think about that and I constantly bring that up when talking about this stuff because it that was one of those things where it was like this clarifying moment where I was like, oh my God, that's exactly right. And here are the consequences. Like, what the, f- it just, it blew my mind. Yeah. It's and it's insane. important. And and I'm not I'm not shitting on the gay lib movement or anything like that, but we need to acknowledge the failings of past movements so we can recognize them today and not make the same mistakes. Yeah. K K K. Let's do this. All right. That's amazing. What god, what a crazy story. What an amazing woman. Right. I know. I thought I thought it was a good one. All right. Well, I'm going to jump on into my lady. I am covering Mabel Hampton. Uh, So really quick trigger warning. There are some instances of sexual assault sprinkled throughout. Um, If I remember to uh, give you a heads up before I read that part, I will. But I'm not making any promises. So just quick heads up. It, it. I don't get super into it, but it's present. Okay. okay. Thank you for that's up. You're welcome. Uh, so Mabel was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina on May 2nd, 1902. So she just had a birthday. Both of ours did. Happy birthday, ladies. Happy birthday, gals. Actually, as you were telling your story, I was like picking these parts where I was like, oh, that kind of reminds me of my lady. That's funny. That always so, happens. We're yeah. so serendipitous. Yeah, like when I when I made the joke about all the women being in prison being lesbians, well, that's because that happens in my story. Oh, all the women funny. in prison are lesbians. Anyway, uh, so two months after her birth, her mother died. Oh. We're just going to jump feet first into the yeah. sad. Let's just do this. Because of this, Mabel was raised by her grandmother until she was seven years old. Then her grandmother died too. Emily, this the beginning of the story is just going to keep punching you. So just get down, get in the field position and ride it out. So having lost her mother and her grandmother, the seven year old Mabel was put on a train to New York City to live with her aunt and uncle. This arrangement, however, wouldn't last long. Mabel's uncle, trigger warning, was a deplorable ass bag monster and was raping Mabel and she was being continually abused by the rest of the family. That's terrible. Yep. So these things come in threes. <laughs> this just hits real hard, real fast. So within a year of uh, this living arrangement, Mabel got the fuck out of there. Yeah. She was only eight years old at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Mabel hopped on. Oh, by the way, uh, I don't know if I explicitly say this. Mabel is black. Okay. It's important to the story. Yeah. Um. But I just realized that, like, I talk about her fighting for, like, black civil rights, but I don't know if I explicitly state she's black. Now you did. I There we go. I, I worked it in so organically. It right. wasn't awkward or out of nowhere or anything. So Mabel hopped on the newly built subway and got connected with either, like, a white family or a working class black family. I, it said both in different places. Uh, History. Yay. Oh, God, it's all so conveniently accurate and constantly consistent. 
Uh, so she she started living with a different family in New Jersey. Good. Uh, and she lived with them until she was 17 years old. So Good. fingers crossed that was a healthy enough situation. It sounds like she's not afraid to get the fuck out when she has right, to, Right, exactly. So when uh, when Mabel struck out on her own in the early 1920s, she moved to Har- a Harlem apartment where she would live until 1932. Nice. So uh, this was a crazy time in Harlem. And I Kelly knows because it's the 1920s. It's Harlem. But for our international listeners or our listeners who are not so historically inclined, it was crazy. Women had just gotten the right to vote. Prohibition was just setting in. And speakeasies were, speakeasies were popping up like crazy. And what is known as the Great Migration or the Great Northward Migration, in which millions of African Americans moved from the southern states across the north, led to a thriving black community in Harlem, which would become the center for black arts and culture. Mabel began performing as a singer and a dancer at Coney Island. It's not that she necessarily had like a passion for performing, but it was just one of the few jobs available to to black women with little education. Like, oh, you can follow some steps. Fine. I don't, you know, whatever. Get up there. And it was it was more of a lack of opportunities. Yeah. You know. So like I mentioned earlier, the subway was shiny and new. It was also affordable for New York City's poorer citizens. A subway trip to the seaside resort of Coney Island was only five cents. While Coney Island was historically frequented by upper and middle class visitors, the newfound accessibility to the poor completely altered the way Coney Island functioned. Businesses had to adjust their practices and their prices to be more affordable to the influx of lower class visitors who couldn't afford a whole 15 cent hot dog or sorry 15 cent roller coaster rides and 10 cent hot dogs who's got that kind of cash just laying around right i don't <laughs> it's funny though because i always think of coney island i just think of it like as a as a pier with like a, a it's an amusement like park, a carnival yeah. well they have an amusement park like on the on the boardwalk or yeah, whatever but it, like it was oh i can smell the lasagna i'm sorry it just like <laughs> hit me but yeah, then they also like they were really big on like freak shows and yeah, it was like a carnival basically. Yeah, but whenever I think of Coney Island, I don't think like upper class, upper cr- upper crust, you know, resort town. I'm like, oh, that's how it happened. This is where the end began. But here's the thing: they also um, they also had this thing where it used to be a lot of private beaches, and a lot yeah. of those beaches became public too. So basically, the whole place became more accessible to poor people, which right. I totally support. But this I'm is, like, this is wait, I'm sorry, this is a hoity toity resort. Like yeah. Coney Island lasted probably far longer than it ever should have. I mean, I, it's still, I think it's still a thing. It's a hundred percent still a thing. Yeah. Like they don't have freak shows and stuff anymore, but Thank I'm pretty God. sure like the roller coasters and stuff are still around. I, I'm pretty sure it's still a, like a pretty hot vacation spot. There you go. History um, tour will stop at Coney Island. Yeah. <laughs> so because of this, Coney Island became known as the Nickel Empire during this time because it only took you five cents to get there. Hmm. And uh, Kelly also used to own it. Yeah. (laughs) That was her last name. Five cents. Five cents. Entertainers like Mabel also took advantage of the new audience. She joined an all-black female ensemble performing at Coney Island. It was here that she seemed to have a sexual revelation. Mabel met an older woman from Philadelphia who introduced her to the term lesbian. While Mabel had recognized that she had feelings for women earlier in her life, she didn't have a word for it. 
That makes sense. And like when I first read that, like it sounded mind blowing. But in the early 1900s, there weren't conversations or even resources about non-heterosexual relationships. Most of those relationships were super low key. Yeah. Pretty, pretty on the hush hush. Unless you had like, what was it? A Boston marriage. Boston marriage. You were upper class and, you know, no one could touch you anyway. Right. And even then, I mean, I I don't know if it's sexual. I just think they're really, really, really close. They're just two women living together. You know, they're just really good friends. They share a lot of secrets. All that passionate screaming coming from their house at night. That's not what sex like sounds like. It's just me grunting and the woman lying there not moving <laughs> look, look looking like she's really not enjoying it like she's just kind of right, waiting she for might it to have be done fallen asleep. i can't <laughs> oh, jesus <laughs> so mabel would later say quote the making of me there was this one woman in coney island i can't right now recall her name but she was the beginning of me being a lesbian because it was something she like she understood her feelings but she or recognized them, have, but she didn't yeah. know it was like a thing yeah. that other people felt. Uh, I get that. After meeting the woman who was married presumably to a man, I just assume, Mabel finally had a word for her feelings. Quote, I said to myself, well, if that's what it is, I'm already in it. <laughs> I like, love oh, is, her. Is this what you call it? Okay. She's a fucking badass. And she just, she comes across as just like a really confident, like maybe a little snarky, but in the best way. That's why like half of my story about Marie was just like, well, that didn't stop her. Yeah. Uh, So the two only spent one night together before the woman returned to Philadelphia. Uh, And presumably her husband. Quote, uh, she taught me quite a few things. I knew some of them, but she taught me the rest. So th- this woman really served as like a gateway into like a mentor. Mabel's identity. Yeah. And I feel like that's still a thing within the queer community. You, you find people who have kind of been through it and have the experience and have the understanding and they can like help coach you through your own understanding. Because I feel like there's this... Um, People understanding their sexuality, particularly if they are not heterosexual, there's almost this level of being stunted because you're constantly encountering people who are like, either that's not right, that's not normal, or that's a phase. You're constantly like being told to shove it down and to finally meet someone who's like, this is normal. This is the word for it. Here's the language. Here are the tools to like start exploring this yourself because growing up, not everyone has the freedom to explore their own identity. Right. Yeah. It all depends. Uh, This chance encounter helped Mabel better understand her own identity. See, I... I don't know why I even write my notes. I know what I'm trying to say. Now, Mabel got her start at Coney Island, but she didn't stay there long. She began performing at bigger stages in Harlem, which was the epicenter of New York nightlife. While performing in Harlem, she rubbed elbows with other prominent queer black women, including comedian Jackie Moms Mabley, singer Ethel Waters, dancer Ethel Williams, who was Ethel Waters' girlfriend. And like, oh, I'm kind of want to cover them now. Yeah. And of course... Gladys fucking Bentley, the white tux wearing badass. We covered her last year. We did. So I wrote it down. We covered her in episode 14. I think I titled that the first half of that like a perfect piece of African sculpture because that was how she was described. Seriously, check her out. She's fucking amazing. I love her. I love most of the women we cover. Probably all of the women we cover. Except Except for for the murderers. Yeah, the October (laughs) women. That woman that killed all the grannies sucked. (laughs) 
Mabel later said, quote, I had so many different girlfriends, it wasn't funny. <laughs> to um, her, it's funny I'm laughing, Mabel, you're a fucking, you're a gem. However, uh, even though Harlem was hopping, it was still the 1920s and being a black lesbian was not easy. In 1924, Mabel Mabel and her friend were set up by the police and accused of being sex workers. You see, at the time, an unescorted woman in a bar was automatically considered a sex worker because there's no other reason a woman would be out and about alone. Let alone at a bar. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Excuse me while I clutch my pearls. I... (gasps) And you know what? I was talking with Jared about this because the story blew my mind. I was like, Jared, I just have to get this out before I talk with Kelly. And something that we kind of realized was that's still kind of there because a woman at a bar alone is a target. It's weird. Well, men will approach her and be like, hey, can I buy you a drink if she says no? That's why Mabel was with her friend because you're stronger in a group of two. Can I? Okay. Story time. There's this bar that I used to go to with my friend all the time, and one of us would only go to the bathroom like one at a time because we want to save our table. And I kid you not, whenever one of us left the table, left the table within 30 seconds, a dude would be there hitting on whoever was left behind. They were fucking waiting until one of us was left alone and then swooping in. And I literally had the same guy do That's it to me so on two separate occasions. And I, he pulled the same line. He's like, why are you sitting all by yourself? Don't you have a boyfriend? And I was like, and the second time it happened, same exact line. I was like, dude, this is the second time you've done this to me with the same line. Please go away. He goes, you're just playing games. Don't 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 feed me. You're just playing games. I'm like, I assure you, I am not. I am trying to help you not waste your fucking time. Get out and get a new line. <laughs> but like, think about that ramification. This is the 1920s where the police could legit arrest a woman for being in a bar alone. But that mentality that a woman in a bar is a target or available in some way for sex is still a thing. Guys, come on. Ah! I'm just going to primarily scream for the rest of this episode. I'll finish her notes. Hold on. (laughs) So Mabel pled her case before Judge Jean Norris, who had the distinction of being New York City's first female judge. Before we start cheering, though, she also had a reputation for being a fucking bitch who stuck black, who hated black women and sex workers and stuck them with harsh sentences because she sucks. That's why I went, hmm. (laughs) I waited. I was like, there's going to be a butt coming. You know, you know. So this behavior would eventually get her removed from the bench, but would get her male colleagues promoted faster. (laughs) That that's just me assuming. Uh, but not before she sentenced Mabel to three years in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for women. For not being a sex worker. For daring to be a black woman alone. In a bar. And, like, not even, like, she's with a girlfriend. Right? Like, and I don't even know if it was, like, a romantic partner, because it just she, said But friend. she was with another woman. Like, yeah. Like, she wasn't alone. It's not like she was sitting at the bar, like, sticking her ass out, like, eyeing guys, you know, making the money, sim- like motion with her hands like come hither (laughs) yeah even then what the fuck now uh with women of color and members of the lgbtq plus community being 
disproportionately targeted by the police, it's no surprise that Bedford Hills was full of queer women. Even their first superintendent, Catherine Benmet Davis, was a lesbian. Nice. So, <laughs> now, we got Orange is the New Black, but I want this to be a show, especially since Mabel would be a much better lead than Piper, who I got sick of after first the first season. She just turned into a whiny pain in the ass. Yeah. Mabel was a model prisoner and seemed to get along with the prison's administration. So much so that after she was released, she successfully got them to step in and deal with employers who cheated her out of pay and overworked her later on. Nice. So she didn't have to take out the horsewhip. She just brought the prison in. And they step in. They're like, what do I hear about you being a dick to Mabel? Huh? They got the nightstick. They're jangling their keys just like. Right? They're like, we got a few open cells over here. Do yeah. You want to spend a night? Exactly. So Mabel is a badass black lesbian with the fucking prison on her side. Boom. As I said before, Mabel didn't have a passion for performing and didn't return to the stage after being released from Bedford Hills. Dance gigs were also on the decline with the end of Prohibition, so the speakeasies were all shutting down. And that ha- that happened with Gladys Bentley, too. Her career yeah. saw a drop at- with the end of Prohibition, which I-, I hate to think of because Prohibition ending was good, but like it gave so many performers, particularly, particularly black, black performers. performers. God, I love you. Uh like it elevated them they had their their chance to really work and perform perform and and, yep yep and then suddenly they didn't yep but yeah so the speakeasies are closing the great depression is starting she said quote i like to eat (laughs) she's like i gotta make that money it wasn't just this that made her leave the stage. It was also, trigger warning, the rampant sexual harassment and assault that still plagues women in the entertainment industry today. Quote, every place I worked at, worked at, some man would feel my pussy and I'd have to leave. Jeez, God, why does that sound so recent and familiar? I swear like every other year, more of that just comes up and it's just such bullshit. Side note, I've been listening to this podcast called What a Creep. Highly recommend to everyone. It's two women and uh, every episode they profile a different, as they call it, creep, loser, jerk, or asshole. And they cover a lot of like sexual predators. I mean, Louis C.K., Bill Cosby, uh, Matt Lauer, like they're they're all fucking on there. And if they haven't, if they haven't gotten to them, they will. And it's, it's really... It's frustrating, but it's fascinating to see how these people are allowed to get away with this. And not even just allowed, but enabled to. Right. And so that's why we're still dealing with people saying it's okay to grab women by the pussy. This was the 1920s. And 100 years later, it's still Still a problem. Still a thing. Uh, Still disgusting. So Mabel got work as a house cleaner. Uh, She briefly worked uh, for the mother of notable lesbian activist Joan Nestle. Joan Nestle. It's the two N's. I want to make sure I'm enunciating. So this is how Mabel and Joan met and struck up a lifelong friendship. Joan actually interviewed Mabel, which is one of the reasons we have her story today. In 1932, Mabel met Lillian Foster. I did try to find more information on Lillian as an individual, but couldn't find a lot. There's also like a famous old school journalist, I think, with the same name, but it's not the same person. 
But I assume she was amazing and they're the cutest couple ever because they would stay together for the rest of their lives. Because um, they, they fell in love and lived together in the Bronx until Lillian's death in 1978. So forever. Yeah, forever. Together, Mabel and Lillian uh, became part of a community of other queer women and Mabel documented their lives and experiences as Lebby. Why are words hard? Lebanese. As Lebanese of color. <laughs> As lesbians of color living in the early 1900s. Wasn't that a thing from Glee? Where the girl was like trying to say she was a les Like like they all had shirts about like their uniqueness. Oh, yeah, and the girl said, said like, she I'm was Lebanese. Lebanese. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of lesbian. Oh my God. Uh, she, she also enjoyed an extensive collection of lesbian pulp fiction. So... That sounds fun. I had never heard of lesbian pulp fiction, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners haven't, so I'm going to get into it a little because it's fascinating. And that's one of the reasons I like doing these stories, because you find out about like all these niches of the culture and the time right? that would otherwise never, you would never know about. Yeah. So lesbian pulp fiction were paperback novels with strong lesbian overtones, just like any pulp fiction, really. Uh, these books were huge for lesbians at the time because there was little to no literature involving like lesbian relationships or lesbian figures in general. According to Stephanie Foote from the University of Illinois, where my dad used to work, I used to hang out there, uh, quote, pulps have been understood as signs of a secret history of of readers and they have been valued because they have been read the more they are read the more they are valued and the construction of a lesbian community becomes sorry the, i remember reading this quote and i was like this is hard to follow characters use the reading of novels as a way to understand that they are not alone so basically what that woman from Philadelphia did for Mabel, lesbian pulp fiction was doing for countless women yeah, exactly. who were like, that. oh, shit, there's a word and this is real and other people feel this way. Yeah. It's not just me. Again, the queer community has always been here. Eventually, Mabel would donate her writings and her massive collection of pulp fiction to the Lesbian Herstory Archives, or LHA. The LHA uh, is the world's largest collection of materials by and about lesbians, which was founded in part by Joan Nestle, awesome. her bestie. Yeah. Joan Nestle, her bestie forever. That makes a good rhyme. I like that. I may have to cover Joan in the future because she just sounds amazing. We have uh, three more weeks. Yes. Mabel didn't just donate her writings to the LHA. She worked tirelessly to collect stories, biographies, academic articles, literature, and anything else that documented the lesbian experience, making her a critical contributor to the LHA. Yeah, that's amazing. She would even attend marches waving an LHA banner. So she'd like go to pride marches or civil rights marches, and she was like, lesbian herstory archives. And I love that they say herstory. I know. Like, I read that. I was like, yay. <laughs> Mabel's writings and her work collecting other documentation was critical to preserving the stories of the queer community at the time. So you know how people think being gay and trans, etc. is a new trendy thing? It's that's not. It's not. And that's because queer people and their stories have been systematically attacked and erased oh, yeah. in the most horrifying ways imaginable. Like women get erased and then like, and that's terrible. And then like the fact that 
trans and gay and LGBTQ plus people get erased is like another step of horrible. And then people of color. Yeah. Like it They're just all compounds. in there. There's just yeah. steps. It's fucking awful. But they so they've been around forever living their lives. And thanks to Mabel, some of their stories were preserved. So many of their stories were preserved. And it gives us a peek into what it was like to be a lesbian at that time, because that's a history that would have otherwise been lost. Mabel was a vocal advocate and supporter of black rights and LGBTQ plus rights. So this these next few sentences are just going to read like a list because she was just awesome. And I. There, there was no narrative. There was just stating how amazing she is. Yeah. She joined the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights on October 4th, 1979. And I believe that was the first March on Washington for LGBTQ plus rights. That sounds about right. Mabel volunteered with the New York Defense Recreation Committee. Uh, and despite being on a working class income, she also supported the Negro Opera Company and donated to the Martin Luther King Memorial Fund, along with other LGBTQ plus organizations. Wow. Remember, guys, like donate, do something. You can show your support in a billion different ways. Right. Mabel was also a member of the Service and Advocacy for GLBT. Sorry, <laughs> it's not like the order i'm used to reading it because some things these, have changed some of these letters were not included for a while so the glbt elders uh also known as sage because they knew i would have a hard time saying that uh so this organization advocated for and developed services for elder members of the lgbtq plus community Aww, which that's like nice. that's incredible that's not something i would have thought of but yeah, like especially as you get older and, you know, if you weren't able to marry and establish a family, well, yeah, maybe your family, your yeah, your family probably disowned you. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Because all the social barriers that they're facing only get worse when you get older and more vulnerable. Right. Mabel also marched in every pride parade in her lifetime. And I couldn't find anything that said she was at Stonewall. I'm not counting it out because she was living in New York at the time, but it like every it's a solid, organized it's a solid maybe. Yeah. Mabel's activism and story was featured in uh, the films Silent Pioneers and Before Stonewall, The Making of a Gay and Lesbian Community, uh, which came out in 1984. Wow. And these uh, documentaries talked about the LGBTQ plus community before the Stonewall uprising uh, which is credited as being the spark of the modern gay lib movement. And if you want to know more about the Stonewall Uprising, please listen to episode 13, where we talk about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Marsha's still like one of my favorite women that I've covered. Yeah, I was going to say Sylvia is definitely up there. I'm probably my top 10. Absolutely. In 1984, Mabel was invited to speak at the New York City Pride Parade and told her story. Quote, I, Mabel Hampton, have been a lesbian all my life for 82 years, and I am proud of myself and my people. I would like all my people to be free in this country and all over the world, my gay people and my black people. The following year, Mabel was named the Grand Marshal of the 1985 New York City Pride Parade, in which she marched for years as part of sage so like she was like i said she marched in every pride parade and she was usually a representative of sage she is fucking amazing and i love her and i want her to like live forever but she didn't 
Mabel died on October 26, 1989 from pneumonia at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center at the age of 87. Jeez. She lived a long time, oh, though. Yeah, like, it's hard did. to be sad. Probably such a rough start. Like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find where she was buried. I even like checked findagrave.com, which explicitly said that it didn't have that information. But I really have to believe that her grave isn't lost like so many of the other women we cover because Joan Nestle, I believe, is still alive. Like a lot of her uh, allies and friends, I'm sure, are still alive or, you know, yeah, have carried it on. Yeah, like they maybe wouldn't it's just have, not public information. Die, like. In some rando grave. Fingers fucking crossed. Herstory head cannon. She's fine. She's fine. She has a grave. It's pretty. It's gorgeous. It's always got fresh flowers, and the birds never shit on it. They know. <laughs> Even the dogs know. <laughs> They're angry. <laughs> Legacy. Mabel was a critical and enduring member of the civil rights movement and gay lib. She helped preserve the stories of lesbians and queer culture while fighting to create a brighter future and brighter stories for everyone. As I said before, Mabel's story is documented in the documentaries Silent Pioneers and Before Stonewall. Her lifelong friend Joan Nestle, uh, I keep saying, it sounds like I say Joe Nestle. No, I heard Joan. Joan and Nestle who helped create the Lesbian Hursery Archives, interviewed her and helped preserve Mabel's story. So a lot of those quotes I gave were from those interviews. You can support the Lesbian Hursery Archives at www.lesbianhurseryarchives.org. You can find them on Instagram at Lesbian Hursery Archives. You know we're following them. They have written stories, audio recordings, video, and more, all documenting the lives and experiences of lesbians, including Audrey Lorde, who we covered in episode 35. Uh, And they don't just cover stories of, like, notable, famous lesbians. Uh, They have interviews and documentation on everyday herstory heroes. Because we're all herstory heroes, guys. Seriously, check them out. I am definitely going to be doing some more digging. Because I was like, how have I not heard? Lesbian herstory archives? I don't know what rock I've been living under, but geez. Apparently a pretty dense one. Yeah. I have been, too. So cheers to Mabel, the guardian of lesbian stories. She's a badass. And as I was doing this research, like, especially talking about her doing the marches and, you know, her work with Sage, I couldn't find a ton of details on that. So the whole time I'm reading, I was like, her story is so much deeper than I'm going to be able to get into. Right. And I even I tried to find a podcast on her to like supplement because I was like, there's got to be more detail about her activism. And I searched Mabel Hampton and found absolutely nothing. So we may be the only podcast on Spotify about Mabel Hampton. Maybe there should be more, but we will take that honor. (laughs) What are you thankful for, Emily? I I was like, I can't ask. She's going to be so mad at me. I got to wait. Um. I am thankful, kind of like I said at the beginning, for just the little moments that made me feel good. Um, I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to help out the Queer Fan Brigade in the very, very tiny capacity in which I am. Uh, I'm also really thankful for the work they're doing. Um, and I'm thankful I had a good fl- uh, I had a good phlebotomist <laughs> at my blood donation. I'm always thankful for that because I have hard veins and I yeah. know it. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I was a little pissed. I told you this story, but basically there was a guy next to me who had a female phlebotomist and he was doing like a bunch of mansplaining you know, to the blood donation woman about what tests they should and should not give for blood. And then in the middle of her explaining the aftercare instructions, he took a phone call and chatted for like a solid minute and then was like, I don't need you to tell me this. And she's like, I actually have to go through all of this. Like, it's the law. This is part of my job. Yeah. And so... I don't know. Like, that's not something to be thankful for, but I'm thankful that she is... A, a kind person who's doing good things and that I don't know <laughs> right I get it yeah sorry that one I I'm still pissed off about that yeah like you told me that and I'm like wow like how male white privilege can you get he was not white but oh. he was he was he was male an privilege o- he was an older gentleman who thought he knew better than the you know I'm like this is technician. literally their job this is what they do Every day. Dude, you realize, like, this is a volunteer thing you're doing. Like, no one like, made you come here. <laughs> don't mansplain to the person who just took your blood. Yeah. But uh, I'm thankful that things do seem to be getting... Be- I am thankful that with the March of Time uh, and because of the hard work of so many people and the sacrifices of so many people who are pushing for things to get better, things will, even though we were ranting a lot in this episode about like, wow, shit don't change. It does and it will and it can and we just need to do the fucking work. And so we I'm gonna read I'm gonna reiterate my point at the first. Do something right now. I don't you gotta do something. Educate yourself, donate, volunteer, do something right fucking now. I agree with Emily. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Least favorite part of at um, least I didn't like just throw you under the bus. You had time to just not listen to me and to think of what you were thankful for. But I like listening to Aww, you. That's because you're a sweet lady. Oh, thanks. I enjoy your Boston marriage. Yeah, <laughs> you too. Um, what am I thankful for? I'm like, what did I actually accomplish this week? Not a whole lot. Well, and that's okay. Yeah, I, I guess I'm thankful for being able to take a step back and work on my mental health because it hasn't been in a great spot lately. And I mean, I'm still doing what I can in the situ. You know, like I'm, I'm still, you know, donating time and energy and you know stuff. I'm not like ignoring what's going on. Right. But it's it's nice that I have the ability right now because I'm on furlough to take care of myself in a way that I probably wouldn't if I was still working. Exactly. It's so hard to prioritize your mental health when it seems like just one more thing you have to deal with. Yeah. Amongst a pile of responsibilities and stress. Like I've I've been thinking about it. I've been having a hard time going back to therapy because I'm like, I feel like I just don't have the time or the energy. Like I I will be doing something productive that needs to get done. And the whole time I'm like, I should be doing that other thing that is also productive and needs to get done. But then if I go do that, I'm like, oh, I should be doing the other thing. I feel like that's what it can be like with therapy. And so I'm proud of you, especially with what's going on and not being able to go in like physically to see a therapist, that you are taking care of yourself and prioritizing your mental health because it's hard right now. And everyone needs to. Yeah. Please, God. real quick, stop what you're doing, drink some water, stand up and do some stretching, and say something nice about yourself. It doesn't even have to be like, like I'm genuinely. the best. No, but just, just be like, you know what? I have not, you know, my nail polish looks great today. 
I didn't murder someone today, and that's swell. <laughs> the go. bar is that low I didn't, now. <laughs> I didn't horsewhip someone today. Well, hey, that was fine because it was justified. I know, but in general, you I didn't probably earn a horse whipping today. Anyone today. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, uh, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to our first episode of Pride Month. That was like our first episode. <laughs> this was, was a, our first episode I was ever. Real confused for a split second. I Everything has like, just what been are a you warm up. About, Emily? Everything's just been a warm up to up until now. Uh, So thank you so much for listening to uh, another episode. Tune in next week and uh, like us on Facebook, Whining About Herstory, Instagram, W-A-H pod. Twitter, W-A-H underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com where we would love to hear from you, your herstory heroes, your say their names, really anything. Your recommendations, like guys slide into our DMs. We're totally open to that. Yeah, we are. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whining about herstory. You can donate for as little as $1 a month. Uh, guy, patrons, matrons, whoever you, you are. I am so sorry I didn't get that bonus content out. Yeah. I was going to do it Sunday. And that's when uh, the social media stuff that I was working on hit. And Jared was also having a rough mental health day. So I was trying to like juggle. So you'll have to get that taking up care of point. him and then taking care of that stuff. And like my Sunday got so fucking out of control so fast. <laughs> and I was editing the episode. It was like, ah, but okay. yeah, we still love you. Also, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps us out. It helps us get found and it costs you nothing. Right. This can be like the nice thing that you do today. That, yeah, that can be the thing that you stand up and be like, you know what? I rated whining about her story. And yeah. You can feel good about that, it. That can and you'll be make nice us thing. feel good. Yeah. Uh, if you're not into us or this wasn't the serious academic discussion that you hope for, that's fine. You can move on. You know, part of me hopes that whoever wrote that is still like secretly listening to yes! our podcast. He's like, maybe they'll get more serious this week. And every time we call them out, there's like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, you can always delete that review, friend. <laughs> maybe. I don't know if that works. I don't can know you? Either. I don't know. I anyway. Don't know. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.